0: And welcome to this latest Norton Rose Fulbright Financial Services Split, the different podcast. My name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge. And today I'm joined by Jonathan Herbst and Hannah Meekin, partners in our London Financial Services team, and also Flora Nagelkirk, a partner in our Amsterdam office. In this episode, we're going to focus on the regulatory approach to branches, particularly that the dust has settled following Brexit. So let's jump right into it and start with the UK. Jonathan, many UK branches of EU banks and investment firms had to enter into the temporary permissions regime and then get reauthorized in the UK post-Brexit, given the loss of passport and rights. Has the TPR and authorization process finished for these UK branches? Has it all settled down now? And is the picture now clear? Thanks,
1: Simon. Hi, everybody. Um, <laughs> Yes, it's one of those stories that keeps on giving because you would have thought by now we would be at the end. The realities are we're not quite. Um, I think where things are at is that some of the branches, many of them perhaps have now got been granted their authorization, but not all of them. And uh, hopefully most are in the final stretch now to the end of the year, and in the next few weeks they will receive their authorization. But it would not be true to say that either from the PRA or the FCA perspective, all of the branches are authorized yet, but obviously the deadline is coming up. I think the other thing to note in terms of your other bit of the question, which is, has it all settled down? Well, I think everyone will be aware that um, the the FT ran the sort of front page article about two weeks ago around subsidiarization and branches. And I think maybe just to step back from that, there are two points I'd make about this. Number one, there's always been a difference historically between the PRA's position and the FCA's position. I think the PRA historically has been very used to branches, banks, and insurers. Um, and in our context, banks. Um, that's been something that's been there for many years. The FCA historically did not have a positive attitude really towards branches. So the FCA, as everybody knows, brought out their paper, I think, last year on their policy on branches. Um, And so we had expected the, you know, the FCA to begin to accept branches. We'll see, and I think it's still work in progress, and I'm not talking about TPR evolution so much now, talking about more generally, you know, to, it, work in progress as to how much FCA really will accept branches. And on the other hand, I think we'd anticipated uh, in the industry that the PRA settlement, you know, where there was reasonably clear guidance actually on when a branch would be accepted and when it wouldn't, uh, was settled, unlike the FCA, which is more touchy feely, the guidance they brought out. The FC, uh, the FT article, I think in many ways um, raised questions about that. I think suffice to say for the moment that there hasn't yet been any follow-up, and obviously it's a huge dynamite type of issue in the industry and for regulators, because it would lead to a lot of capital implications. I think for present purposes, I would simply say we and many others are keeping an extremely close eye on that, because it's, of course, of great interest to all of the bank branches in London, uh, of whatever size they are.
0: Okay, thanks, Jonathan. Uh, Georgia. at the time of Brexit, the EU didn't operate temporary permissions regimes for EU branches of UK firms. So these firms had to seek authorisation in member states. Uh, what sort of approaches are you seeing as regards UK branches operating in the EU?
2: Thanks, Simon. So there are no real uniform approaches. So every member state has its own discretion in relation to the third country. Uh, um, investment firms or, 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 or say financial institutions um, for instance under Dutch law there is a perm- permission that would allow a UK branch to get a license and its authorization um, but it hasn't happened in in practice yet because also the Dutch regulators just don't really know how to deal with that um, and that has resulted Throughout the member states uh, into local subs, um, and we have seen uh, an EBA report on that. So indeed, there there was a report in 2021 considering, because of the fact of the, the third country, um, well activity uh, in in the EU. So they they have looked into it and they 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 made some high level policy recommendations in relation to further harmonisation of the EU law. Um, you do see now uh, in relation to the uh, crd reform uh, that there that the EBA recommendations have been taken into account um, by the European commission when it proposed um, the reform um so there were it was quite contentious in, in, in relation to the um, regulation of the third country branches um so there is uh, still discussion going on um now there seems to be a compromise um uh, reached in uh, in June. Uh, which is more aligned with the Parliament and the Commission and the EBA view. So indeed, sort of uh, taking those um, recommendations into account. Um, but yeah, that's uh, still to be determined what the outcome is. So until now, it's really sort of um, every member state for its uh, for its own.
0: Okay, thanks, Claudia. Um Hannah, it's an interesting aspect of the UK regime that when an international firm becomes authorised, the whole firm benefits from the permission granted so that the services can be provided in the UK on a cross-border basis. Are we seeing firms using this in practice? And also, um, a branch form is part of the legal entity incorporated outside the UK. Its obligation to be open and cooperative with UK regulators must be considered not only in the context of the activities of the UK branch, but the firm as a whole. What sort of issues does that raise too?
3: Hi Simon uh, hi everyone yes um, we have seen a number of firms that are authorized as branches in the UK using their permissions to provide the same or sometimes different but related services from head office and this does raise some some tricky questions um, so first of all is the very practical question of where a service is actually being provided given that many organizations have people in their branch, but also people in head office and sometimes even other offices around the world um, who are all performing a role in the transaction flow, Um, just a a slightly different role. So for example, could be onboarding, could be managing the relationship on an ongoing basis, um, could be sales, could be traders, could be the um, kind of booking and post-trade type activities. Um, And really kind of getting a, a grip on where all of those things are happening is, is obviously the kind of the key point. Um, but then the um, the second uh, kind of uh, question is trying to work out whose rules actually apply to which of those activities at which points in the chain, and that is not um, I think it, equally that's always not not always that clear. Um, one particular conundrum we've come across is where a branch in in the UK is arranging a transaction for a client that's going to be booked in head office because. The UK uh, regulatory legislation says that you can't be arranging a transaction to which you're also a party. And so this idea of almost kind of treating the branch as a a separate, um, you you, you either kind of have to treat the the branch and the head office as really part of the same entity, which is what they are as a matter of law, Um, or if you think that you should have both permissions, you're almost kind of treating them as though they were separate legal entities, which is a bit of a legal fiction. Um, and causes a number of other complications um, and the other area which sometimes can get quite confusing is is client money um so where there is for example uh, uh, clients money or even securities being held um, let's say by head office but in relation to regulated activity that's being done in the uk
0: okay thanks uh, Florto, uh could you comment from an eu perspective
3: yeah so in, in that respect,
2: I think I relate to what Hannah says. I think that that's sort of similar to, to the EU situation as well. What we have seen is that um, uh, regulators do allow that people um, have, say, dual heading so that they work for the EU entity plus, the, the for instance, then in this case, the UK branch. Uh, and then indeed, there, there's sometimes the discussion which rules would apply and Are they similar or are they different? Um, uh, I think, like I said, in in relation to the dual heading, um, the regulators are really looking into the, the time commitment. So do you have sufficient time to do your... Um, well, activities and services here in the, in in the EU, or or is it is it sort of not really um, well as straightforward as it is, and, and and how how much work does it entail? So uh, and indeed, well, like I said, like like Hannah, there's there's of course the potential divergence and the conflict of laws uh, that should be considered, and is is indeed like Hannah's perfectly described, very tricky.
0: Okay, thanks. Uh, Jonathan, uh, Brexit triggered a discussion of the booking model practices used by international banks, and this issue is inextricably linked with the question of how to prevent empty shell entities from being set up. Um, I'm grateful for your view. What are the possible pressure points on booking models and how flexible have you found the regulators to be? Yes, thanks, Simon. So
1: um, I think it applies both ways. There were the issues related to um third country branches booking into the EU. And then there were the issues around um EU trades being booked into the UK in this context or a third country branch. And it isn't just UK, it applies across the globe and more generally outside the EU context. So got to look at it both ways, branch into head office, head office into branch. And I think The official guidance hasn't moved on that far from the EBA's guidance in 2018 and then supervisory statement 521 from the PRA. And I think the nutshell is that although if you look at it both ways, just let's look at the UK element first, Um, in terms of the PRA, they... Have been reasonably pragmatic, as they said at the time, you know what we really want is a transparent, justifiable model for booking. So certainly, to the extent that um, trades have been done from London but booked into head office for you know balance sheet reasons, but uh, generally speaking, we've seen that re- being a you know, reasonably flexible approach to that, um, And I think that sort of makes sense in the context of home state. Capital supervision and the prudential side, and generally the balance sheet. So that makes sense. Obviously, the issue we've often seen, and it's been much discussed, is the the extent, and it links into SMCR, the extent of senior manager responsibilities. You know, to what extent are the UK management responsible just for the origination, the execution, and then the a credit risk analysis that goes off the back of that, or does their you know position, does their involvement stop? at origination or stop at origination and execution. So that's that's obviously a very big question. And I think the main issue that the regulators between them, and they are cooperating quite a lot now, uh, are you know, interested in is making sure there are no gaps so that somebody somewhere within the bank knows what is going on. This is largely true in investment firms as well. And we see this issue less, but nevertheless the same. Uh, the other thing, just to say, and I don't want to stray into EU turf, but just you know, from a UK perspective, what we've seen in terms of the branches is, I think it's fair to say, more flexibility than perhaps we expected um, from the EBA end and the ECB. But I think it, I think it, perhaps hasn't been such an issue because, generally speaking, the London branches have been quite keen to book. London business into head office, No, I don't think there's really been, at least our perception is there's been very little attempt to book EU business into London. And where there has been, it's been because there's been a particular business line that is run from London. So I can think of a couple of banks we work with where you have a business line that is run from London, it's, it's a specialist sector, and there's been a justifiable reason for it. So I think the good news is from both ends, at least our perception is, as long as uh, an institution, I, I talk about banks, it applies to investment firms as well, has been able to justify their model rationally uh, in terms of the overall prudential supervision of the entity and, you know, look at the divide between the different bits of management in home and host. Actually, it's been reasonably pragmatic. And, you know, let's be honest about it. That's how it should be. And let's hope that carries on.
0: Okay. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, floger anything to ask from an EUA perspective?
2: Well, I, I think I can echo uh, largely what Jonathan says. So, in the in the EU, of course, we have the guidance on the booking models. Uh, the regulators are looking into it, and and especially indeed for sort of on concentration risks on the back to backs and how that is applied. But typically, that works indeed. Like like also Jonathan says that he he notices in the UK is that they they in that sense book quite logically, and if if they do it, then the the, the, the well, the regulators are quite comfortable with it. Um, it did have quite a bit of attention around uh, Brexit because of the fact that they were afraid that booking would be different to circumvent certain rules and applicability of rules. I think that largely settled down and I think that the regulators are in that sense currently quite comfortable with how, um, especially then the banks are dealing with that.
0: Okay, thanks, Roger. Um Hannah, moving back to you now, um Looking at branches, what does business as usual compliance for a UK branch look like?
3: So operating as a regulated branch, I think takes some serious consideration in terms of organizational setup. Um, the, the UK regulators accept that branch strategy is going to be influenced and directed to some extent by head office but they want to know that the branch can make its own decisions whether to undertake particular business and has the authority to do so in accordance with UK rules and expectations. In reality, this often manifests itself in the branch management committee or or other governing body looking much like a mini board of directors, but with an additional information flow to and importantly also from head office. And indeed the description of the senior management function 19, so the head of the uh, branch, is very similar to that of a CEO in in reality. So so this um, Smurf 19 role is really important one because this person needs not only to have the highest degree of decision-making in relation to UK business, but they also need to be sufficiently senior and influential at the executive level of the organization itself because they need to be aware of anything that's happening more widely in the organization that could impact on the branch. And the regulators really expect that they, they have that knowledge and understanding and awareness. So, uh, and obviously given that the branch is heavily reliant on, in, in reality, in most cases, it's heavily reliant on many functions that are being performed by head office, or under the direct control and supervision of head office, then that is likely to involve um, awareness of a number of areas.
0: Okay, thanks, floja What does it mean from an EU head office perspective to have a branch?
3: Um,
2: well, good question. Uh, what we have seen is that the regulators are really looking into, say, substance. So, um, in, in principle, it's allowed, of course, to have have, have branches in, in in well outside um, uh, the EU as well, but also within the EU. And they are looking really when well when Brexit happened, but also currently still is if the branch would be substantially larger so if many if more people work in the branch then and and more uh transactions and and volumes and and services are being undertaken by the branch they sometimes wonder whether or not the Dutch or the mm-hmm. European entity is really the one in charge or whether it is more the branch that is running the business so that is sort of what they they are, well, focusing on when you apply for for the branch, and and of course they they will look at at governance, how you manage it. They look at at dual heading, outs outsourcing, um, and and of course also they take into account the uh, EBA guidelines in relation to the significant branches uh, of 2017, um, whereby also they they look at sort of on a prudential level on on how how compliant and what the um, what the volumes is. So the, so they it it, it it is really. Uh, a, a focus point, and it is a topic of attention, especially, like I said, in relation to whether the head office is really still in control, uh, or that they may be running by the branch, or and and like I said, in also the the ongoing rules and applications, and I think also in relation to AML, there are a couple of uh, risks that should be taken into account. So what we have seen is that the uh, regulators are really focusing on. Uh, for, for financial institutions that they really have a good risk analysis in place and especially then with third country branches, um, what kind of risks are there? Ex- are they exposed to and are they taken care of um, sufficiently enough in the policies and procedures and uh, again also on government side, governance side. So th- I think those are the things that we see um, when there is a um, well a UK branch or a non-EU branch.
0: Okay, thanks, Flauja. Turning now to both Hannah and Jonathan. Um, In your experience, what are some of the areas that UK branches have found most challenging to deal with? Perhaps, Hannah, you could go first.
3: Yes, I mean, I would call out two key areas. Um, So the first is transaction reporting. Um, I think many firms have found the need to report the same transaction to both their head office and their branch regulator a little bit strange. Um, I mean, we're, we're clearly past the stages of disbelief and, and surprise, but the practicalities of actually doing this have been quite difficult for some firms to to manage, not least because it's not as simple as reporting the same fields for each part of the entity. Um, if if you're actually performing different roles within the transaction chain, then you might be having to, to provide uh, slightly the information in a slightly different way um, for, for each of the regulators. So that would mean, for example, having potentially two sets of systems and controls in place. Um, and again, there's there's kind of been quite a lot of debate about where a firm is actually executing a transaction or undertaking one of the activities that triggers the need to report in the first place and how you really determine that. So not a, not a straightforward process, I think, even after several years of this being in operation. And then the second um, area I would mention is intra-entity outsourcing, um, so, you know, as mentioned earlier, a branch is very likely to be heavily reliant on human resources, technology and systems and controls that sit as part of the head office or the wider organization. And while some organizations may have had some documentation explaining who does what and how the head office and the branch interact with each other, um, we, we have found that most firms needed to, to do a significant upgrade to their documentation in this area Um, as a result of having to get their branches in the UK reauthorised. And and obviously this does a bit depend on uh, the nature, scale and complexity of the, the branch in question as to what the regulators really expect. But there is much more of an expectation that the branch is thinking about this almost as though they were a separate legal entity to the head office.
1: And Jonathan, any thoughts from you? Yes, thanks. Uh, I mean, just to add to Hannah's uh, points, I'd pick out two. I mean, one is the old VEX question of follow the sun and what it really means. And this is not not a specifically Brexit, post-Brexit question, and it's not a new question, but what on earth that means where you've got a global institution. And so, for example, things we've grappled with uh, over the years are situations where, you know, a client is taken on in a jurisdiction, may or may not be head office, in reality it is serviced by different people around the clock and you've got these really difficult questions around application of reporting rules conduct rules and various other things so uh, and market conduct and and client facing conduct so we won't go into all that today but i mean, i think that's and maybe that's a topic for another time but we've actually done a lot of work on that and i think the realities are it's far to say that there's a tension between the legal entity view of the world and the jurisdictional view of the world—I can put it on the one side—and the reality, of follow the sun, global models on the other, which you know all, all institutions are trying to get in terms of cost savings, and they are—they are really intention. And the other point I'd link to that is the mix what I call the mixed activity problem, where just to give an example, in conduct of uh, business rules for the UK purposes, you know, if you've got business being done from head office cross board, institutional business being done into the UK under the foreign business carve out the vast majority if not all of the conduct rules have been disapplied some aspects of the principles still apply um, that's fine but what happens if if some of the activity is done from the branch here in, in the UK some of it is done cross-border you know those those mixed activity scenarios have caused a lot of problems I think so i pick out those two in addition
0: which very much back up what I had say Thank you Jonathan and as my final question it's one thing In a branch and having to comply with two sets of rules when the rules are broadly the same, but both EU and UK legislation is starting to diverge. How do we think branches are going to manage this? Perhaps we could take views from the UK first.
3: Yeah, oh well, thank you. I mean, I I think that is going to it's only going to become more difficult, uh, obviously. The um, I mean, the first problem is working out which rules will apply to what kind of when it's done where Uh, the second problem is then complying with the, I guess, understanding and keeping track of what the different sets of rules are um, and actually complying with them. Um, And I I think the regulators recognize um, clearly recognize the second problem. Um, I think there's not always as much attention paid to the first problem. And one of the things that I think would be helpful as the rules start to um, become uh, different, more different, is to be really clear about their scope of their application, especially as it relates to branches, Um, because this would be helpful to both the branches and the head offices, um, so they can understand what they might need to do differently in the different locations, and then to organise their resources accordingly.
0: Okay, thanks. And Flodja?
3: Yeah, I,
2: I I echo what Hannah said say, saying. I think it's really important to do a lot of. I think nowadays more the horizon scanning and what is what is to come, um, and and really in an early stage identify whether those could pose a, a problem or not. Um, and in that sense, I think an uh, early engagement with the legislators and the regulators to explore how they see things developing why they want to do it in the way they well the current the proposals or the thinking is and also then explain what the uh, implications would be if a certain rule would be different than in the in the EU or the the other way around. Um, what we have seen is that currently sometimes if rules are different in different jurisdictions that they take the stricter approach so comply with the, the most the, the strict um, the stricter set of rules where appropriate or possible, it's not always possible so then therefore you then have to say that well the dual tracking so then in different jurisdictions and different offices it's, it, the, the rules are different but then you really need to be on top of indeed managing that pro- appropriately um so i think that is really important to well indeed to, to stay on top of the gap analysis between the rules of whether there is a gap or whether there um and, and, and then how to deal with that
0: okay thanks floydra um, my thanks to Jonathan, Hannah, and Florja for sharing their thoughts today. That concludes this Split the Difference podcast. Previous editions of Split the Difference can be uh, found on the North Merce Fulbright website. Uh, we will continue to track regulatory developments in this field on our Regulation Tomorrow blog. We help, hope you found this podcast helpful. Goodbye.